If you got your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, and then we're going to jump over to Psalm 51, Luke 18 and Psalm 51. As you're flipping that direction, um, we've been going through 2 Samuel and the story of Absalom, but you got to start with kind of the mess up of the house of David in order to get to the story of Absalom. So just so you know, we're going to detour just a little bit today, but not from the story. We're going to detour from 2 Samuel to the 51st Psalm that David writes. For those of you who've been with us through the study, Right after uh, David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, commits murder, covers it up of, of her husband, covers it up, uh, and then gets called out by Nathan the prophet and then has his moment of repentance. Uh, many scholars believe that David literally went straight from his meeting with Nathan to pen the 51st Psalm. In fact, other than the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 51 might be David's most famous. It is the, broken, it's the prayer of a broken man trying to find his way back to Almighty God. It is a beautiful, beautiful prayer, and we're going to go through that today. Uh, but it starts, our study today is going to start Luke 18 and then Psalm 51. Um, opening question today is this, have you ever been humbled at something? Have you ever been humbled at something? Now, just for the record, there's a difference between humble and humbled, all right? Humble about something is understanding your place in the world, okay? Humbled means that there was a very specific moment that showed you your place in the world, uh, where you are are realizing your humility all in one instance. I had a moment that happened. uh, uh, So back in the day, one of the first times I kind of remember uh, something like this taking place, I played weak side linebacker uh, from Monterey High School in Lubbock, Texas years ago, and I got to start the last last two games of my senior year uh, for Monterey. So I wasn't great, but I was good enough to get the start right there at the end. And uh, I was in about peak physical shape of my entire life back in those days. And so um, I remember uh, there was a young lady that uh, was the number one tennis player on our uh, Monterey High School uh, team. And uh, she wanted to spend a little time together. And so I I think it wasn't quite a date. It was just spending some time together. I'll never forget. She goes, well, would you like to play tennis? And I thought, you know, athletics is probably the same, you know, on every level. And I'm a starter in football. And so I'm sure I can play this little tennis game and I'm sure it's fine. Some of you have been in tennis lessons your whole life and you know it is hard. I mean, it's just incredibly hard. But in my brain, I wasn't very humble. So I show up. Uh, she has her $250 racket. I've got the one that I borrowed from my grandparents' closet, you know, and I uh, got the little racket show up uh, uh, at, the tennis, uh, at the tennis center. And I remember she looks at me. She's the number one tennis player on our high school team. We're both seniors. And she goes, do you want me to take it easy on you or do you want me to play my full, to my full abilities. And again, I'm a high school athlete. I was a starter. She's a starter. And so I was like, no, just tell, don't take it easy on me. I, I want to see, see what you can do. Guys, I'm just telling you, I was humbled that day. I was humbled. I did not score a single point. She was hitting it at 85 miles an hour, and it's just coming straight in. I, mean, I can't even hold the racket right to hit it back, and I'll never forget. It was so bad. By the end of it, she goes, wow, this was amazing. We should do this again, and I was like, uh-huh, and then I never called her again. I'm just going to be honest. I was so humbled in that moment. I was like, I was having nightmares about that serve, all right? Anyway, it's just the way that it goes. Humbled means you have this understanding of your place in the world. That's one thing in athletics. It's another thing when it comes to our relationship with God. You got to know, humble doesn't mean that you put yourself down. 
Humble means that you see yourself in an accurate life, light and your circumstances also in an accurate light. So what is that light? Jesus portrays that for us in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 9. Here's what he says from a spiritual perspective. Look at this. It says, to some who are confident in their own righteousness, look at this, and who look down on everybody else. Underline and highlight and look down on everybody else. Now, just so you know, it's not a bad thing to be confident while we walk in righteousness. But the key here is the problem that we really struggle with in this city in particular. It says they look down on everybody else. The problem with our city is that we are an entire society that is built on an election system, an electoral system, where we try to measure ourselves against others all the time, right? We're in a system where there is a winner and there is a loser. And here's the problem. Spiritually, it creates this attitude of not can I do the very best that God has made me to do, but rather am I doing better than the person to my left or the person to my right? We begin to measure ourselves against others. It doesn't say that those who were confident that they were walking with God in righteousness alone. It says those who were confident in their righteousness and they looked down on the person to their right and to their left because they felt like they were better than them. Look at what Jesus says, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's like a teacher and a religious leader who's a professional believer in Yahweh, and the other a tax collector, someone known in this culture uh, for being someone who stole from their own people. It says, verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance, underline at a distance. He knows his place, lucky to just be in the room. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We have to remember that when it comes to Almighty God, the only reason that we have any hope whatsoever is because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to write this down, a little statement here for you. The humble abide in the understanding that without Jesus on our best day, our finest is still worthless. Let me say it again. The humble abide in the understanding that without Jesus on our best day, our finest is still worthless. Your goal is not to do better than those around you. Your goal is Colossians 3 verse 23. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart because you're working for the Lord and not for men. So back in the day, I ran track uh, for, my, uh, for my middle school and my junior high. And then, uh, I, and then my high school, I, had to, I was forced to do it for, uh, uh, for athletic purposes. In order to be in the athletic class and play football, they tried to keep you in having you run track. And so I'll never forget my ninth grade year. Um, I was so bad at running track, and uh, uh, that year um, I ended up making it to the finals. But it was the way I made it to the finals that was so interesting. Um, I remember uh, there were two heats that they were running, 
And there was the heat that I was in, and then the other heat had the kid that would end up winning the championship, and just he was just the best. Ended up running in college and, and was a heck of a runner. And so I remember, I went to my coach, and I was like, Coach, what do I need to do today? And he goes, Randalls, you don't have a chance. He said, you just need to do your very best. He said, that's the goal for you today. And I was like, thanks for the pep talk. And he goes, just, I'm telling you, he goes, don't worry about the other stuff. He goes, if it's meant to be, it'll be, and you'll make it to the finals, but you just need to run as hard as you can today. So here's what happened. There were two heats. And here's what happened that day. I ran as hard as I could, did the best that I could. And when it was done, I did not even finish in the top of the group. But I'm telling you, I ran as fast as I could. In the other group, the one with the guy that would end up winning the whole thing, he ended up running a slower heat. And can I tell you what happened? He was saving it for the finals But he was the one that because of his persona, because of his reputation, he set the tone. And then all of a sudden, these people who were finishing second, third, and fourth in his heat, the heat was so slow, my heat, the whole top half ended up making the finals because their heat was so slow. I'll never forget coach coming in. He was like, Randall's a miracle has happened. You made the finals. Now listen. You do the best you can with what God has given you, with the calling that he's placed on your life. When we end up running a race, comparing our race to others, a lot of times we end up running a whole lot slower than we could if we just did our very best. Humility is understanding our place in the world and that almighty God, we can have confidence in knowing that as we follow him and as we seek him, Christ's shed blood covers our sin and makes us holy. So... We now have a situation here where David has been humbled. The man who is the king, the one who has got full-grown pride uh, that has uh, sprung up in his life and caused him to do unthinkable sin, all of a sudden David has been humbled and we get a beautiful prayer from him. If you're taking notes, our big million-dollar question today, what are the powerful prayers of a freshly humbled heart? What are the powerful prayers of a freshly humbled heart? This, uh, if, whether you've come in today and you are one who is truly humble and trying your very best uh, to live for God, um, if that's you and you've come in today, this is a great sermon for you to take notes on because I can promise you, you will be humbled at one point or another. Uh, and this is one that'll help you navigate that time. And then there are some of you, you just accidentally found your way through to the church service today and you are at what you might characterize as one of your lowest points of your entire life. If that's you, not here by accident today, and this is a great lesson for you to get to walk through where David, the man after God's own heart, what he thought and what he was feeling when he navigated his time of humility. Let's look uh, at, uh, now flip over Psalm 51, and we're going to start in verse 1. What are the powerful prayers of a freshly humbled heart? Now, if you've got like little letters right underneath Psalm, uh, right underneath Psalm 51, uh, not every Psalm has this, but some Psalms have a, a bit of context that go with them. And here's what this one says. For the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Um, the context that's given here, many scholars believe David literally left that meeting with Nathan and he wrote the 51st Psalm in the wake of that. Now look 
look with me, if you will, at Psalm 51, verse 1. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Underline, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Underline, wash away. Cleanse me from my sin. Underline, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressors, or my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop. Underline, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me. Underline, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Now stop right there for just a minute. Do you notice this? It says, blot out, wash away, cleanse, cleanse me. Wash me, oh God, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was like the the antibacterial spray of the day. I mean, I'm telling you, David just over and over again from the start of this prayer of repentance is, God, clean me up. You're the only one who can. God, clean me up on my own, on my very, very best day. It's still filthy rags to you. Lord, I beg you, clean me up. If you're taking notes, what are the powerful prayers of a freshly humbled heart? Number one's the most important. Number one, apply the antidote. Lord God, apply the antidote. A freshly humbled heart, realizing your place in the universe, cries out to God, clean me up. Just like we sang a second ago, you're the only one who can. You ever sprayed alcohol on a wound before? I'm telling you. It doesn't matter if you're six years old and skinned your knee or if you're 60 years old and skinned your knee, right? I'm telling you, it feels the same. It hurts like Hades when that thing happens. And I'm telling you, you spray that bacterial spray on whatever's been hurt. And here's what happens. Depending on how infected it is, man, it will bubble up. And I'm telling you, sometimes it'll sizzle. You ever heard it sizzle before? I mean, that almost makes it worse, you know? I'm telling you, that infection must be drawn to the surface so that it can heal, When it comes to your spirit, you have to have a moment where you apply the antidote. If you don't, we can try all the things of this world, but they will never fill the void. I've given you this example before, but it's a good one for this. One of my favorite cartoons of all time is Charlie Brown Christmas. You realize why Charlie Brown Christmas has stood the test of time. It's the story of American materialism around the holidays, but it's deeper than that. It's every person's relationship with Almighty God. Charlie Brown starts off and he goes to Linus and he goes, I just don't get it, Linus. I just don't get why I'm unhappy. I feel this deep melancholy. There's this hole in the middle of my spirit and I just don't know how to fill it. So what does he do? He goes to Lucy for psychiatric advice. Remember it says five cents. You get what you pay for with psychiatric advice. All right. So he pays his nickel. And then after that, looks at Lucy and says, I just don't get it, Lucy. I don't get what Christmas is all about. This void in the middle of my soul. Why is it I'm feeling this deep melancholy? And what does Lucy say? She says exactly what we say here in DC. She goes, you know what you need, Charlie Brown? You need involvement. You just need to be real busy all the time. And then you won't even think about that massive void in the middle of your soul. Just get real busy. In fact, there's a Christmas play that you can direct. That's what you need, Charlie Brown. You need to boss people around. You need to be able to tell other people what to do and how to act. If you'll do that, then that void in your spirit will be filled. But do you remember the way it goes? He's still not happy. He's as busy as he's ever been. He's bossing people around more than he's ever done. But he's still incredibly unhappy. 
So then he walks over to her again and goes, I still don't feel happy, Lucy. I still feel this void in the middle of my soul. What do I need to do now? And she goes, you know what you need? You need a proper Christmas tree. That's what you need. Buy a whole bunch of stuff, Charlie Brown, and then that'll fill the void, right? Just get you some things, and then that'll cover everything up. So what does he do? He didn't have enough money to get the big tree, so he goes and he buys that little busted tree, symbolic of his life. He buys the tree, and every time he picks it up, the pine needles fall off. You remember what happens when he walks in? They all bust up laughing. Look at what your little life has produced. And all of a sudden, he goes from feeling sad to feeling very angry. If you've watched Charlie Brown before, you know that he has a crush on a little red-haired girl. She's not in that episode, but you could very much put that into the flow of the discussion. Maybe if he just had the right last name, maybe if he just was with the right person, then maybe that's what would fill the void and make him happy. But she's always just out of reach. So finally, he looks, holding the tree, symbolic of his life, and he goes, well, Linus, I guess I'll just never know how to fill the void. I guess I'll just never know what Christmas is all about. And do you remember? All of a sudden, he looks to heaven. It's symbolic of each one of us. He looks to heaven and cries out, isn't there anyone who knows how to fill the void? Isn't there anyone who knows what this is all about? And then all of a sudden, the answer comes from Linus. The best one for it to come from. The dude with the thumb in his mouth and the blanket over his shoulder. It's symbolic of fallible man with infallible gospel. All of a sudden, with the blanket over his shoulder and the thumb in his mouth, he looks at Charlie Brown and says, Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. I can tell you what this life is all about. He walks to center stage, and all of a sudden, the spotlight comes down, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. He takes his thumb out of his mouth, the blanket off his shoulder. And he shares the beautiful words of Luke 2, that Jesus is the reason we celebrate Christmas. But it's deeper than that, that he is the one that can fill the void, the only one. I love it because he takes the blanket and puts it back over his shoulder, puts his thumb back in his mouth, and walks out of the spotlight. Again, it's fallible man with infallible gospel. He walks over to Charlie Brown and says, that's what will fill the void in your soul. That's what Christmas is all about. At that point, he's got to make a decision. And so Charlie Brown looks down at the tree and decides whether or not he can receive the message. He picks it up. He leaves the room. And do you remember? He looks at the heavens. It's my favorite part. He looks at the heavens and he rethinks about the words that Linus has spoken. And then you watch it. He smiles and says, I'm going to take this tree home and I'm going to decorate it. It's the same tree. It's the same busted life. But understanding as a believer in Jesus Christ that he is under his authority, living in his world with his plan, all of a sudden he skips into the night with joy. Now listen to me. Some of you have tried so many antidotes and you're still unhappy all the time. The melancholy is still there because it doesn't matter how busy you are. It doesn't matter how many people you can boss around. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter who it is that you're with. At the end of the day, we were made to worship Almighty God. And that is the only thing that will fill the void in the midst of our soul. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Sin is an infection that seeks to ravage your body, limit your movement, and eventually destroy you. Sin is an infection that seeks to ravage your body, limit your movement, and eventually destroy you. Every one of us 
must be washed in the blood of Jesus in order for us to be saved. Some of you heard a little bit of this story before. I got a really bad infection. Um, this was back several years ago. I got it on a mission trip. That never happens, by the way. Some of you are like, I'm never going on a mission trip because of that. Um, but I got a bacteria infection. And uh, I ate a bad piece of chicken. There was only one meal I ate. I showed up late for the group. And I only ate one meal apart from our mission team. Had a bad piece of chicken and got something called Campylobacter. All right? But it was misdiagnosed. And so whenever I went to the doctor, it was an honest mistake, but they diagnosed me with a different type of bacteria infection. And so I took the medicine and it killed all the good bacteria so that all of a sudden in the election of my body, uh, Campylobacter was running unopposed. And so uh, all of a sudden it just began to just tear me up and tear me up. And this is really gross information, but it's true. I started having these black spots in my fecal matter. It was, I didn't know at the time it was blood. And so all this blood for two weeks. And then finally, one night, I just began to pour, I mean, just red blood out of my system. And so it's three o'clock in the morning, called a friend of mine uh, who was a gastroenterologist in Texas, uh, three in the morning. And I go, what do I do? This just happened. He goes, you idiot, go to the hospital. He said, that's what you do. And he told me, he said, go to GW hospital. He said, they're the trauma center there. He said, they will know how to fix this for you. He said, go right now. I go to the hospital. I get there. They had it properly diagnosed within just a couple of hours. And I remember them coming to me and they said, here's the deal. You have this. They said, we're going to put you on the IV immediately. They said, one of two things are going to happen. I think you're going to feel instantly better. They said, or they said, we think you may have ruptured a bowel. And they said, it's possible that you could be paralyzed in your arms and legs in the next few hours. And so I'm sitting there and my wife is with our kids at home. So I'm there by myself and I'm like, okay. And they're like, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep us posted. And I mean, they walk out and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, what's going on? So Ed Downing, our community groups pastor, just happens to be stopping by the hospital right at that time. And he walks in and he's like, hey, Zach, are you doing okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. They said I might be paralyzed. I mean, I'm just trying. I start crying at that point that Ed was there to pray with me. Well, here's the deal. You apply the proper antidote. You apply the proper antibiotic, and then all of a sudden I did four days in ICU, but after that, everything worked out just fine. I tried the wrong things, and it nearly killed me. Now, don't miss the example. I'm not saying that in this circumstance that if you don't do this, you're going to get a horrible bacteria infection, all right? I'm telling you, you go after the wrong antidote, it can end up hurting you even further. You know what a lot of us do? This is going to sound like the voice of experience. You know how we get into trouble financially? You get in trouble financially because tough things happen. That melancholy and that void in your soul, you try to fill it with other things. We used to call it in our family survival mode. It was that point where we just went, man, everything feels out of control. Everything feels like it's spiraling. And so I can justify spending that money that we don't have so that it fills the void for a time. Or you start to sit there and you go, you know what? I'm super busy. I know that I've got all these problems, but if I just stay busy, then I'm telling you, if I take four shots, then I can fall asleep at night. We self-medicate with that alcohol. And then before you know it, it doesn't work anymore. And then you're in really big trouble. Listen to me. David comes in and says, Lord Jesus. Here he comes in and says, Yahweh Almighty God, cleanse me, wash me purify me, make me clean once again, clean me up with hyssop so that I can be infection free. Now, some of you might say, well, Zach, I'm a pretty hardworking person. Save your spot there in Psalm 51. Flip open to John 13. 
Some of you might say, I'm the type of person where I don't want to ask Jesus for help. I I want this to be something that I work through on my own. When you get to John 13, there was no better do-gooder at this point in the church than, than Peter. And so you have this situation where Jesus is meeting with his disciples on the night head to the cross, and he does this amazing example for them. Even the best of the do-gooders still needed the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cover them. Look at what it says in John 13, and let's start in verse 1. It says, it was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal came and was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 6, it says, he came to Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. Look at what Peter does here. No, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, Peter, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Circle, underline, and highlight that statement from Almighty God. It says, then Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Verse 10, Jesus' response is basically, your feet will do. Now listen. Jesus goes before his disciples, and the last real lesson he teaches them, he does the job nobody else wants to do. He takes off his outer garment, and he washes their stinky feet. Remember, at this point, they're walking everywhere. Their feet would have been the dirtiest part of their entire body, and Jesus willingly leaves the seat of the master to go and to wash their feet. At that point, Peter goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're the master. I'm the servant. Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, unless I do, you can have no part with me. Peter at this point is the leader of the discipleship group. He's the one who's been funding a lot of the ministry. He's the one that Jesus has said on this rock, I will build my church. And even he still needed to be cleaned up. And that's the story for you today as well. Every believer in Jesus Christ has had a moment when we say, Lord Jesus, clean me up. Because if we don't, unless he washes us, we can have no part with him. It begs the question, do you have an infection that needs cleaning? Do you have an infection that needs cleaning? Is there sin in your life that you need to give to Jesus? Now flip back over to Psalm 51, and we're going to read verses 8 through 10. I believe these verses that we're about to read, specifically verse 8, is a glimpse into the heart of why he is the man after God's own heart. Are you ready for this? Psalm 51, verse 8. Here's what it said. Let me hear... Joy and gladness, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Underline and highlight that whole verse. Let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now stop right there for just a minute. 
David and the mess that he's been in says a powerful ancient warrior verse here in Psalm chapter 51 verse 8 where a lot of kids got books written uh, uh, books read to them when they were kids my dad was all but dissertation to have his PhD in Roman law and so dad would tell us stories of ancient warriors before I would go to bed and that was one of the things we always loved one of my favorite stories he would tell was the story of Psalm 51 8 and the ancient warrior king here Psalm 51.8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. It's the picture of a warrior in the ancient culture that has started at the beginning of a tour of war, a tour of battle. It wasn't just a short amount of time. It was long tours of battle where they would be gone for months at a time. Then they would settle back at their homeland and then they would basically regroup. They would heal. And then when the months would pass, then they would hit the field again and they would go for a four or five month tour on the battlefield once again. The picture that we get in this verse is that in the very, very first battle that that warrior has been in, all of a sudden they are hit with a club on their arm. It breaks the warrior's arm, but the warrior can't just go home. So the warrior then bandages it, survival mode, like we talked about a second ago, bandages the wound and begins to fight with a broken arm while they finish out the rest of the tour of battle. But here's what happens. By the time they get back home, all of a sudden the bone is grown back together wrong. And because of that, the warrior can still fight but the bone has grown back together in such a way that they cannot be as effective as they could be. So what does the warrior do? Knowing that there's six to eight more months before they have to hit the battlefield again, the warrior looks at his best of friends and says, guys, break my bone so that it can be reset the proper way so that by the time we get ready for battle again, I'll go out and I'll be bigger, faster, and stronger. For the good of the village, for the good of my family, for the good of my spirit, we got to break that bone. So stick an arrowhead in my mouth. Man, give me whatever moonshine it is that we have in this village. And I'm telling you, break my bones so that I can be bigger, faster, and stronger. That's what makes David the man after God's own heart. He looks and says, Lord, break my bone and let the bone you have crushed rejoice. For some of you, the big prayer after God apply the antidote, number two, is God reset my infrastructure. Reset my infrastructure. Lord Jesus, break my bone. Crush it if it'll make me better for you. The Apostle Paul says it this way. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But it is Christ who lives within me. And this life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, bone broken. I no longer live, reset it, but it's Christ who lives in me. Painful execution to my own agenda. And this life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? We call it sin of lifestyle. It's when we just live in a way to try to get by and then all of a sudden it grows back together wrong. It's a malformation causing us to be lesser. And the scripture tells us, change, break the bone, reset it. I didn't put this in your notes, but for some of you it bears repeating. Do right before it feels right. That's the whole deal on break the bone. Do right before it feels right. If scripture says it's the way, then you live in accordance with scripture and allow God 
to strengthen that bone over time. One little quote here for you. you write this down if you want to. A disciple consents to painful but necessary corrections brought forth from the truths of Scripture. Let me say that again. A disciple consents to painful but necessary corrections brought forth from the truths of Scripture. I want you to notice that I didn't say brought forth from the pastor or brought forth from the church. You see, there are some of you who've come in here and you've got some baggage because a pastor ripped into you for something when it actually wasn't based in Scripture at all. God's Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When our bones get ripped to pieces are when we read something in Scripture that goes in direct contrast with the way we've been living. And when we stare at the truth of God's Word, we have a decision to make. Do we let Him break the bone? Or do we just pretend like a busted arm is good enough for battle? It begs the question, do you have a bone that needs breaking? Do you have a bone that needs breaking today? I had a bone in my life, and uh, it's a strange one. Where I grew up, some of you might have grown up in a similar community, the worst thing that you could ever be called in West Texas is lazy. That's the worst thing. Some of you might have grown up, and that wasn't just West Texas, that was specifically the house that I grew up in. And so a lot of it, it's good because it stirs and, and builds work ethic, but the downside is sometimes you can mesh together your identity with the job that you have and not with you serving the Lord with your whole heart. And so um, that came to a head for me because I was in a big job that was a bad job and I needed to quit without another job. And so I had the guts to do it. I just had no idea what breaking that bone would expose in my life. All that, again, all my life's meaning came from whatever job it was that I was in. And I'll never forget, I've quit that job. I would still quit it 100 times out of 100, and I would still quit it the way that I had quit it. But the reason I was in that circumstance was because of pride that had sprung up in my life. I now know I never should have taken that job in the first place. That would have been the better decision there. It all came to a head in a little place in Frisco, Texas called Manny's Mexican Food. In fact, if you've ever been to Frisco before, heck of a place. Great place, great enchilada fajitas. Um, and I always was a youth minister up until that point. And so Manny's was famous because they had a Wednesday night all you can eat. I never got to go because I was always working. But this particular Wednesday night, Autumn and I had been out of work for two weeks. And I'll never forget, my parents invited us to go to Manny's with them. And the Lord was working on this broken bone. I'd let him break it, but it just hurt so badly. And I'll never forget, we're at Manny's. We're eating on a night when I should have been working, when I felt like I should have been working. And all of a sudden, a guy walks up to my dad and goes, hey, John, I'm such and such. He goes, he goes, my dad goes, oh, that's great, man. It's great to see you. What are you doing these days? And the guy goes, oh, I'm doing this. And then he looks over at my dad and goes, what are you doing these days? And I don't know what it was. But all of a sudden, my heart started to beat so fast 
I started to hyperventilate. Autumn and I have a four-month-old. Lulu, our oldest, was four months old at that point. And again, we're there in the restaurant, and I can just feel it like I'm about to have a panic attack right there in the middle of the restaurant. And so I stand up, and I run outside, and I fell on my knees in the middle of the head of a caliche parking lot. And I fell on my knees in the caliche parking lot. Autumn runs out with the baby in the carrier, and she goes, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, I don't do anything. She goes, you made the right decision. I go, I know, but they said, what do you do? And they're going to say to me, what do I do? And I don't do anything. Now listen, that night I was so broken. My parents, my parents were wonderful. They weren't the type to just give out money. So that's one of the reasons why I worked at Red Lobster for four and a half years when I was in college. They didn't just give out money. That night, my dad sat down And part of the deal with the job that I had quit is they owed me for vacation days, but they wanted me to come back and fight them for them, and I didn't want to do that. It was the amount of about $2,000. So we were flat broke, and my dad that night came up, and he goes, hey, son, what did they owe you for those vacation days? And I said, ah, it was no big deal. I said, about $2,000. He pulls out his checkbook, and he wrote me a check for $2,000. I said, I can't take this. He goes, you need it. Yes, you can. And that night you could feel it. I wanted his respect more than any amount of money in the world. I wanted his friendship more than any other friendship in the world. And that night I watched the Lord broke the bone and reset it. And all of a sudden in that moment, I experienced the mercy of Almighty God through the gift that I received from my mom and dad. Now listen to me. For some of you, you've got some pretty gnarly lifestyle bones that need to be broken. What makes David special? The man after God's own heart says, break my bone and let the bone you have crushed cry out in praise to Almighty God because I will be stronger, I will be faster, I will be better. My family will be better, the village will be better, the kingdom will be better, and I will be better. Break the bone and let it cry out in rejoicing. So do you have a bone that needs to be broken today? Now look at Psalm 51, and let's look at verses 11 through 13 to close this out. In a lot of ways, the power of David, the power of his, uh, his discipleship is seen in verse 8. Verses 11, 12, and 13 are the whole reason that we repent. Look at what it says next. He says, do not cast me from your presence, underline from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. But restore to me the joy of your salvation. I know I'm restore to me the joy. And grant me a willing spirit to see me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to you. What are the powerful prayers of the freshly humbled heart? Apply the antidote. Reset my infrastructure. And number three. Lord God, fellowship with me again. Fellowship with me again. There are some of you in this room who've had stretches in your life where you were so close to Almighty God. And now you just feel so far away. You feel like you've drifted. You ever listened to a radio station before? Now you can just get like, you know, serious radio and everything's clear even if you're in the middle of nowhere. Back in my day, all right, we had those little digital radios where you had to turn it station by station, channel by channel. In Lubbock, Texas, where I grew up, Z102 was the big channel, 
And here's the deal. You turn to 102.5, clear, uh, clear, beautiful music. But you could turn it just a tick to 102.4, and you could still hear the songs, but it was with static attached to it. Now listen to me. This is what's interesting. At 102.4, if you had heard the song before, then you could still sing along with it at 102.4 with what you had heard when it was clear at 102.5. But you couldn't hear anything new. You couldn't spot or identify anything new. And that's what happens to us when sin creeps into our relationship with Almighty God. When we don't allow Him to apply the antidote and break the bone, instead we just keep going on, but we're living off of the messages, we're living off of our relationship with Him from the past. If it's an old song, we can identify it and sing along. But if it's anything new, we don't hear it with clarity to be able to move forward in that. Apply the antidote break my bone, reset my infrastructure. And then, Lord Jesus, remove the static, make it clear, fellowship with me once again. Lord God, speak to me in a new way and let me hear you clearly without hindrance. If you're taking notes, write this down. Falsehood and pride bring static to our intimacy with God, but truth and humility clarify it. Falsehood and pride bring static to our intimacy with God, But truth and humility, they clarify it. For some of you, you're here today and you've applied the antidote. You're in a season where you've allowed God to reset the bone. And now it's time to cry out verses 11 through 15. Lord, cast not me from your presence. Lord, apply or Lord, please, I beg you, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant a willing spirit to sustain me, to cry out to God. Speak to me again. Speak to me again. I no longer want the sin to stand between us fellowship with me again i can tell you from experience it's never like it used to be it can be better but you have to ask him to talk to you again save your spot there actually we'll call it a day on that one flip over to first john chapter one and i want to read you what the gospel of john or what the apostle john has to say about this In fact, it's crazy. He basically goes uh, exactly through what we just went through in Psalm 51, and he's doing it hundreds of years later. Look at 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Here's what he says. He says, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus, and we declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus purifies us from all sin. Can I tell you why it's the same as Psalm 51? Because it's been the same song and dance since the beginning of time. The only way we can have fellowship with God is to allow the son of God to apply the antidote to us for our sin to not be counted against us, to allow him to change us to his likeness, to reset our infrastructure. And then we get to walk in the light with him once again. It begs the final question, should you ask God to speak to you again? Should you ask God to speak to you again? Just like the radio station, he's still speaking, but you can hear him without the static and he can give you new direction. Thanks for listening today, guys. David's story is so special because he was so deeply imperfect, just like each one of us. The way that he found the way back, we can do the same. Let's bow our heads for prayer.